0: Great to see you. My name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm part of our preaching team. As Alessi said, we are starting the book of Malachi today. I want to give you a heads up as well. Next week, we're going to share with you the results from our Christmas offering. It was very encouraging, very cool. I can't wait to tell you, but I'm going to wait to tell you. So next week, we'll have some more information to share with that. It's really exciting just to see how the Lord has worked. One of the things that I've tried to do over the last few years is develop some, some hobbies, some things that I can do that kind of take my mind off of work, off of uh, kind of a lot of the normal things that I do, things that kind of help me. In, in my case, it's a lot of my job is working with my head. Uh, sometimes with hobbies, I try to do some things that work with my hands. And so uh, one of the hobbies I've been cultivating is cooking. I love to cook. I love to bake. Um, I know that sounds kind of funny, but it's actually really relaxing for me. Um, my wife cooks to feed our family, and I cook for fun. And uh, and so a lot of weekends and things, I, I do that. And so uh, in addition to cooking, I like sort of learning about cooking and watching cooking shows. And so one of the shows that, that I've gotten into with, uh, with especially my older girls are the Baking Championship shows. Have any of you seen these on uh, Food Network? They're really great. There's Holiday Baking Championship and Spring Baking Championship and Kids Baking Championship. And there's all this baking and it looks delicious. And they take these professional and home bakers and they have all these uh, contests and competitions and do all this stuff. And so they they do a lot of really cool things. Uh, But one of the things they eventually always do is some sort of really fancy, complicated cake. And I'm not a huge cake fan, but the cakes they develop just are spectacular. They look so good. But then you realize they look good because the bakers are cheating. They're cheating with this thing called fondant. You know what fondant is? Fondant is like this gum paste kind of stuff that you roll out and it's really flat and it looks really clean and you can technically eat it, but it's icky, right? So like if you've ever seen just a big, beautiful wedding cake, like here's an example of a a beautiful wedding cake. Like see how clean that is. You're like, how did they smooth the edges? They smooth the edges by cheating with fondant and they just lay it over it. And it's just interesting to me because um, if you take the fondant off, the cake probably tastes great, but as it is, it looks good, but it isn't actually very good. It can look good on the outside, but on the inside, it can be kind of, a mess. Let me ask you, do you have a fondant faith? You have a fondant faith. It, it looks pretty good on the outside, especially if you compare it to other people. Boy, does that look good. In the, in the competition of, of faith, boy, yours might stand out, but on the inside, it's really not all that edible. It's really not all that good. Do you have a fondant faith? I remember a number of years ago, my parents at the time were living during the winter in Colorado, in Denver, and I remember going out on a run. Um, I don't really run, actually. I plod. I trudge, you know, but technically I was running, and when I run, I kind of have to listen to music or I don't get very far, and it was a very cold day, and the device I was listening to just, just didn't have much battery left, and I got probably a mile into a three- or four-mile run, and the battery went out, and the music stopped, and it was like, uh-oh. I thought, you know what, all right, I'm going to keep running, I'm going to keep going. And so I kept running and I kept going for like maybe another half mile. And then it was like, all right, I'm just going to walk. So I just start walking. And I'm walking and it's not very long. And I've been going through just kind of a dry time with God. And I'm walking along, can't hear anything. I'm not running. I feel defeated because I quit. I'm not even halfway through and I already stopped. And it was like, I heard this statement in, pop in my head that said, this is just like your relationship with God. It's only good when the music's loud and people are watching. Now, when you kind of think a statement like that, that's really kind of directed at you, uh, I've got to go, okay, whose voice is that? Is that my voice? Is that the Lord's voice? Is that the enemy's voice? Is that the accuser? Because the accuser likes to say things like that to you. So I said, Lord, if that's from you, will you just make it clear that that's something from you? And and the very next thing that popped in my head was the scripture that says, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In that moment, I knew that God was trying to get my attention. He was saying in so many words, you have a fondant faith. Looks good. When you can kind of rally around the music and the energy and the environment, oh yeah, you look really vibrant, but when it's just you and me, there ain't much there. Do you have a fondant faith? See, the people that are being addressed in the book of Malachi had that kind of fondant faith. It sort of looked pretty good, things kind of exterior-wise were okay. Okay. But if you dug a little bit below the surface, you saw that there were some real problems. And that's what this book is about. God is addressing the fact that they have a rather hard, calloused heart toward God. Rather than being receptive to God's correction, they want to confront it and argue about it. Instead of bringing their best sacrifices, they're bringing the kind of lame and blemished ones. While saying they want to worship God and honor God, they're actually abusing their wives and abandoning them. While saying they want to worship the Lord, they're not giving to the Lord with their money and their resources. And as a result, the temple's falling into disrepair. See, that was the situation that Malachi's addressing. What about us? Are we that different? I just want to remind you for a moment that the words that we sang just 10 minutes ago Here's some of what we sang. We sang some very big commitments. We said, we give you the highest praise. You deserve it all. Through every loss or victory, my soul will, only, will rise to only bring you glory. That's what we sang. We sang, it's your breath in our lungs, so we pour out our praise to you, only, right? That's what we said. That's what we committed. That's what we sang before the Lord. Oh God, I'm all in. You deserve all of me. I only want to give you glory. But do we? See, if if we love those songs and if Christians all over the country and all over the world are singing those songs, then then why, when we dig below the surface, do we look kind of just like the world? You know, it's interesting. Research is starting to show that Christians in America, on average, people who identify themselves as followers of Jesus, on average, come to church about 1.7 times a month. You deserve it all, unless I don't feel good. You deserve it all, unless it's been a really busy week. This impacts the way we view sexuality. You know, among unmarried young Christians, they've surveyed groups of unmarried evangelical Christians, and about 42% would say premarital sex is always wrong. It's not okay. There's not a situation when it, right? There are other people who would say it's sometimes wrong, or, but 42%, so four out of 10 would say it's always wrong. But here's what they found. Seven out of 10 unmarried evangelicals between 21 and 45 have had sex with someone in the last year. That's that same group. So four out of ten said this is wrong, and out of those people, seven out of ten of them are doing it. You go, man! Those those young people. What about us? Married Christian men use pornography at about the same rate as non-Christian men. We say we care about marriage. We say we care about purity. Oh God, I just want to give you the glory until I'm tired and stressed and I kind of deserve this. And I've, I've done really well for a while. The people in the book of Malachi weren't the only ones not giving. Christians today, oh God, you deserve it all. I want to give you everything. But Christians today give on average two and a half percent of their income to churches. Churches this is fascinating. During the Great Depression, do you know what Christians gave? 3.3%. We're wealthier than we've ever been. We make all these big commitments, but but we've got a fondant faith in a lot of cases. And so the book of Malachi is, is written to address that in the people of God in that day and in our day. It gives us this opportunity to have a wake-up call, to have some heart surgery, to have God try to prune out some of the things that we've just gotten comfortable with, these kind of lackadaisical, half-hearted, lukewarm things that we've just said, well, that's just how I am, and that's just what I struggle with, and that's just what it is, and it's just a season, and we kind of convince ourselves of that. Malachi's here to go, hey, wake up, wake up, we've got to do some things. So, as we introduce this book of Malachi, a couple things you want to know. The the name Malachi means my messenger. This is a messenger from God. We should read this book reading the very words of God. Look at verse 1. It says, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. This is the word of the Lord. To disobey or to disregard one of these words is to disobey or to disregard God. He's a messenger from God. This is the final book of the Old Testament. If you just turn a page or so, you find that you hit Matthew, Right, So Malachi is this last written word of the Old Testament. The last few verses actually kind of provide a good summary of the whole Old Testament. And then there's 400 years of silence before Jesus shows up. What you have in this book is a series of six disputes. That's why it's going to be a six-week series, is because each week we're going to look at this argument, this dispute that God has with his people. Now, the first dispute, the first argument we find in verse 2. Look at chapter 1, verse 2. What an encouraging word that God begins with. He says, I have loved you, says the Lord. I've loved you. This doesn't mean one time. The the, the nature of this word is the idea that I've just constantly loved you. I've always been for you, and I'm for you now. I have loved you, and I love you now, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Do you hear the kind of dispute in that? How do you love us? Come on, God, show us. Prove it. And that's the first dispute. And so what we're going to see in this passage is we're going to see these, these three ways that we know God loves us. We're going to see that he loves us because God endures our self-righteousness, because God chose us even when we didn't deserve it, and because God rebuilds us even when we blow it. That's what we're going to look at here. Let's pray. Let's ask God's help. Father in heaven, we invite you to do surgery on us. to prune us. And God, when you prune and those shears come in and they cut out areas of compromise and areas of sin and areas of unbelief, God, it hurts and it stings. But God, we know from your word that wounds from a friend can be trusted. And so we pray that you would be our friend, that you would wound us and that you would heal us, and that you would lead us through this book of Malachi today and over the next six weeks, that you would lead us into repentance, into a life of full devotion to you. We pray it in Christ's name, amen. So they ask, well, how do you love us, God? How, how, how have you loved us? And we're going to see in this passage three reasons that we know God loves his people. The first one is we know God loves his people because he endures our self righteous disdain. We know God loves us because he just keeps putting up with us. <laughs> see, the attitude of the people in this question is trying to put God on trial. Oh, yeah, God, you love us? Well, how? Show me, prove it. Right, this is not a, a curious, like, huh, God, how did you do that? And how did you make the earth out of nothing? and right, This isn't like curiosity. This is putting God in the, in the trial box, saying, prove it. And this a key word throughout this whole book that's just going to keep happening is this word how. And every time it comes up, it's, it's this kind of accusation against God. In chapter 1, verse 2, how have you loved us? In chapter 1, verse 6, that you priests have despised my name. How have we despised your name? By offering polluted food on my elder. How have we polluted you? 2.17. You've wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? Verse 13 of chapter 3. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord, but you say, how have we spoken against you? How, 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 how? This is like this has happened for you maybe in a relationship where, uh, you know, ladies, maybe you've gone to your husband or your boyfriend and said, hey, you don't listen to me. Like I feel like I, I bring things up and it doesn't feel like you take it seriously. And I just don't feel like you listen. And the response you get sometimes is, well, what do you mean? What, give me an example. How do I not listen to you? At which point you're thinking, well, like right this very second when you're not really trying to take an interest in what I have to say, but you're trying to defend yourself. Well, how? What what do you mean? Give me an example. That's what they're doing. I love you. Give me an example. I have this challenge with with this area you need to grow throughout the rest of the book. Well, show me. Prove it. Right? This is like your kids. right? I have four of them. There's times when kids ask why because they really want to know. And then there's all the time when they ask why because they just don't like it. Hey, get in the car. Why? Put your shoes on. Why? 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 So I don't kill you. (laughs) Right? That's what you want to say, right? Because you're like, goodness sakes, I love you and I'm for you. Will you just do what I'm asking you to do? Well, why? Right? That's the attitude of the people in this book. And here's the thing. God doesn't kill (laughs) them. He just keeps enduring it. He, even the fact that this book is written is showing that God is, is, is going to have this dialogue. He's going to convince them. See, we're not that different. See, we think, oh yeah, I believe in God. I trust God. I don't put God on trial. I don't, I don't have that kind of bad attitude for all those Israelites. Yeah, you don't right now, but what if things got hard? One commentator on Malachi's James Boyce, here's what he says. He says, this is precisely what thousands of self-righteous church-going people do. They do not consider themselves irreligious. On the contrary, they think of themselves as people whom God in the very necessity of the case must approve. But whenever they have a problem in life, if a job falls through, if a romance goes sour, if sickness or death touches someone close to them, or even if they fall sick themselves, they immediately blame God, holding him accountable. How God? Why God? Now listen, there are times, lots of them in the Psalms, where people are honestly lamenting and praying and asking God, God, what is going on? That's different than the accusing kind of disdain that's self-righteous, and I deserve better than this, and how dare you, God? And yet God is patient, and he endures. See, we we saw hints of this back this fall when we looked at the book of Exodus, right? God just keeps helping these people, and they keep stiffening their necks. They keep disregarding him. They keep blaming him. Why did you bring us out of Egypt? We had it so good back in slavery. Grumble, 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 grumble. And that attitude doesn't leave the people of Israel, right? Because what happened after, this is interesting, because we we studied last year uh, Exodus, which is kind of the beginnings of the people of Israel in the Old Testament. Now we're looking at Malachi, which is kind of the ends of the, at least the descriptions of the Old Testament people of Israel. What happened in between? Well, in between, God led the people into a promised land. He gave them fields they didn't build. He gave them homes they didn't construct. He gave them blessing they didn't deserve. And after a little while, they're like, well, we want a king like all the other nations. So God gives them a king. Then they fight, and then they rebel, and then the kingdom splits, and then they adopt all sorts of other idol worship, so God sends prophets in and say, hey, call these people back, call them to repentance, and they don't, and they keep turning, and they keep turning, and despite God's gracious wooing them back, they keep turning, so God says, okay, you want other gods, you're going to get them, and, and he allows them to be taken into captivity, Israel, the northern kingdom, into Assyria, and Judah, the southern kingdom, into Babylon. And they experience discipline, they experience time out. They experience spanking. They experience God's correction to say, hey, you want to live like the nations? Here you go. Here's Babylon. How do you like that? And here's the thing. God doesn't leave them there. He absolutely allows Jerusalem to be desolate. But then he rebuilds them. He brings them back home. Here's what it says in the book of Nehemiah. In Nehemiah, we'll put this on the screen for you. In Nehemiah chapter 9, which Nehemiah is happening at the same time as the book of Malachi. So this is kind of like like maybe even what we're about to read is a result of Malachi's prophecy. And here's what it says in Nehemiah chapter 9 as they're recounting the story of Israel. It says, nevertheless, our fathers were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who would warn, am I reading the right part? I'm reading the wrong part. Okay, verse 28. All the stuff I already told you. Okay, verse 28. But after they had rest, here we go. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you, and you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies. That's Babylon. So that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies. And you warned them in order to turn them back to your law, yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which is if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore, you gave them into the hands of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, this is such a great verse. In your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them. Two verses later, it says, yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us. For you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. God's patient. When we're self-righteous, when we're sinful, when we put him on trial, God stays merciful. That's how we know he loves us. The second way we know he loves us from this verse in particular, in chapter 1, verse 2, back to Malachi, is that he chose us when we didn't deserve it. He chose us when we didn't deserve it. Look at what it says. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I've hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to the jackals of the desert. Here's here's what God's saying, and and if you don't kind of understand, Esau, Esau, Jacob, what's what's this about? If you don't understand that, no problem. I'm going to explain it. The father of the Jewish faith, you could say the father of the Christian faith, is Abraham. Abraham had received this promise from God that his descendants would be multiplied, all nations would be blessed through him. Abraham has Isaac, and we read in Genesis 25, here's what it says, Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. She hasn't been able to get pregnant. Oh, wow, I'm pregnant. The children struggled together within her. What does that mean? Twins. All right? she didn't have an ultrasound machine those days, so she didn't totally know this. And she said, she feels something. She says, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. So Rebecca is pregnant with twins, Jacob and Esau. Esau is born first, a few minutes later, Jacob is born. So what did he say in that passage? He said, two nations are in your womb. They'll war against each other, and the older, Esau, will serve the younger. And as you read the rest of the history, what you find is that the descendants of Esau become the nation of Edom, E-D-O-M. Edom is this nation that is against Israel. They cheer raucously when Babylon comes in and takes Israel over. They are against Israel, even though they share this kind of kinship. The other nation are the descendants of Jacob. This is the nation of Israel. And what he said was, the older, the Edomites and Esau, shall serve the younger. This is why we can rightly say that the nation of Israel was God's chosen people. This is what God's saying. I chose you. I didn't choose Esau. How how do we know you love us? Because I picked you. Because I chose you. Now, now here's the question that that raises. Is why? Well, why did you choose them? God, what, what, why, did you, why did you love Jacob but reject Esau? Why? why? And, and I, I've told you this before, but I have a little warning for you husbands. Okay, husbands. Eyes up here. This is important. When your wife asks you, why do you love me? be careful. That is a a dangerous question, right? Because here's the thing. If you give some sort of conditional reason for why you love her, it will communicate that you'll love her as long as that's true, right? So you might be tempted. You might be saying, oh, honey, I love you because you're so beautiful. And maybe that's true. And maybe you feel like, yeah, I really admire her beauty. But here's the thing. If you say, I love you because you're beautiful, what are you saying? If you get ugly, look (laughs) out. If what happens to me happens to you, it's going to be trouble, right? What if you say, well, I love you because you're so smart, and just the way you think, and the way you process stuff, and the way you communicate, it's just amazing. Well, what about when her mind starts to cobweb up? You still not love her then? But what if you say, oh, I love you because you work so hard and you just accomplish so much and you just do such a great job raising our kids? Well, what about when the kids move out? And she can't really work the same way, right? So, I mean, even though like, these are like real things we love about our wives, like just be careful, be careful. Here's what you should say. Here's what you should say. You should say what God says to his people. You should say, I love you because I love you. I, I picked you. I love you. See, this is what God says to his people. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 7. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, God is talking about why he chose, why he loves his people. And here's what it says. It says, it was not because you were more in number than any of the other people that the Lord has set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God's saying, listen, it wasn't because you were so many. It wasn't because you were so great. It wasn't because you were so moral. It wasn't because you were so strong. I love you because I love you. And I've selected you and I've held on to you. I love you. This is God's heart. This is the good news for us. Because if, if God loved us just because we were moral, well, what about when we blow it? If God loved us just because, well, we make really great decisions, what when do we don't? See, listen, God does not look down the court of time and think, you know what, who are the good people? I'm gonna pick them. Who are the moral people? I'm gonna pick them. Who are the spiritual people? I'm gonna pick them. No, God says, I'm gonna set my love on you by my sheer Grace. You say, well, what about Esau? What about Esau? Because after all, it doesn't say, but I've loved Jacob, but Esau I've hated. Now, this is important. This, this word hatred isn't speaking about animosity. This isn't God's emotional state toward Esau. This is God's saying, I chose you, I rejected him. To which we all think, as we put God on trial... But that's not fair. Well, why? Why is that not fair? I mean, mercy is when God doesn't give you what you deserve. Edom deserved God's judgment as rebels against him. Israel deserved God's judgment as rebels against him. And God graciously says, I'm going to attach myself to Israel, not Edom. But that's not fair. Why? Isn't God free to give mercy to whoever he wants? No one deserves it. Get this. Not one single person ever deserves God's grace. Not one. God still gives it. He's gracious. He loves his people. Now, now part of why we struggle with this so much is because we think of ourselves as pretty good. Like, we kind of think, well, if there was a team God, surely I'd be on it, right? Like, I mean, my family likes me, and my friends like me, and I like me. I mean, of course, God must like me, right? And so the idea that, like, well... It just doesn't. It doesn't feel right. Well, it's a totally different story if you know. You don't deserve it. I remember hearing some years ago about these missionaries that were doing work in Southeast Asia, husband and wife, and they were ministering among these women that were stuck in prostitution. Sharing the gospel, oh, God loves you. God wants to forgive you. God wants to cleanse you. God wants to make you his own. God wants to adopt you into his family. And it was just resistance. Nothing was breaking through. And the reason was these women who had had entered into this life of sin and being sinned against said, there's just no way that God could forgive me. No way. And the missionaries are going, what do we do? How do we communicate God's love? And they thought, you know what it is? We're going to talk about election. That just as God chose Jacob to be in Israel to be his people before they had done anything good or bad, God has chosen people in Christ To redeem and to save and to forgive. And so they would tell these women, who are you to say you're outside of God's grace? Who are you to say that God hasn't put his love on you before the foundation of the world and that he wants to redeem and forgive you? And they began to see people come to faith in Christ because they knew, I don't deserve God's grace, but God in his mercy might just give it to me. And that's who God is. And that's what God's saying You didn't deserve it. You didn't earn this. You weren't better. You weren't smarter. You weren't more spiritual. But I love you. That's what he's telling the people of Israel. That's what he's telling us. This is why we can say that great Emmanuel church mantra I'm a complete idiot. My future is incredibly bright. And anyone can get in on this. Because it isn't up to how good we are, it's up to God's grace. Here's the third reason we know God loves his people from this passage, is because he rebuilds us after we've failed him. He rebuilds us after we've failed him. Here's what's going on in the rest of this paragraph. In the rest of this paragraph, God is making a contrast between the descendants of Esau, Edom, and the descendants of Jacob, Israel. Right, The Israelites know their story, they know that they had rebelled against God, they know that they had been sent into exile by God, and there's an interesting place, actually in Jeremiah 9-11, where it says, I will make Jerusalem a heap of ruins, a lair of jackals. I will make the cities of Judah a desolation without inhabitants. That's what God says before the exile. I'm going to so decimate this place, jackals are going to run wild and have their freedom. Israel knew that that's what had happened, and yet here they are as the people of Israel in this time of Malachi, no longer in exile, but back in Jerusalem with a rebuilt temple, with rebuilt walls, with a rebuilt city. But Edom's fate was not that way. Look at what it says, verse 3, but Esau I've hated, I've laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. It's the same language. They've been thrown out. They were disobedient. They've been decimated. But here's the difference. Verse 4. If Edom says we are shattered, but we won't rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Here's what God's saying. God's saying, Israel, you know I loved you because I rebuilt you. You were disobedient, you were wicked, you were evil, but I didn't give up on you. That's why the story of the people of Israel is, is our story. It's the story of the, that, that so many people love from Luke 15, the story of that prodigal son. That prodigal son who goes to his father and says, Father, I wish you were dead. Don't, give me my inheritance now and he goes off to a far country and he squanders it and he lives a life of sin and and wickedness and selfishness and self-indulgence and eventually he gets to this point where he's in a farm feeding pigs the most ugly disgusting unclean thing a jew could imagine and it's there that he comes to his senses and he thinks you know what Maybe if I could just get hired back to work for my dad, maybe I could pay him back someday. Maybe I could kind of find a way to earn my way back into this family. And he decides to go home. And the whole time he's going, he's, he's rehearsing this speech. I'm gonna, I'm gonna make this right, I'm gonna make this right. And while he's still a long way off, his father sees him and runs. In those days, for a, for a patriarch to run meant he had to hike up his robe and bare his legs. Get this, patriarchs don't bare their legs. And he hikes him up, and he sprints, and he bear hugs his son. And before his son can even get the the speech out, he, he gives him a robe, and he gives him a ring, and he says, you're home, son. Welcome back, not as a hired worker, but as my son. Let's kill the fattened calf. Let's celebrate that my son is home. Listen, that's the God who rebuilds. How do you know God loves you? Because you've been the prodigal, and so have I. Haven't you wandered from God? Haven't you had moments where you indulged yourself instead of obeying him? Haven't you had these moments where you've been the one who your wife is saying, you don't listen to me? Well, how? So you might be here today going, gosh, it is 12 days into 2020 and I stink already. I'm blowing it. I'm going through the motions. I'm trying, but it's just not working. Is God ever gonna Like, really embrace me again? Yes! Yes! Because God loves his people and he chooses his people and he rebuilds his people. He's not gonna let go of you. Trust him. Turn to him. Don't turn away. He would love to wrap his arms around you and rebuild you and show you that he's not finished. Let's pray. Oh God, what grace you give us. God, thank you for how you have saved your people from ourselves. God, thank you for your patient endurance with the people in Malachi's day. Thank you for your patient endurance with us. God, thank you for setting your love on us in Christ for loving us first. And God, thank you that even when we run away, if we're in Christ, we're sealed by your spirit and we will not be let go of by you. You will bring us to repentance. You will bring us to obedience. You will bring us back into closeness with you. So God, would you do that? God, for those today who feel like they've maybe just taken it too far and they've just been stuck and stagnant for too long and they've run away from you, God, would you bring them back today? Would you remind them of your faithfulness, of your love, of your care? God, you, would you remind them that you're the one who has dealt faithfully even when we have acted wickedly? We pray it in Christ's name, amen.